passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, it's really good to have you if you are able to be here with us this morning physically or if you're connecting with us virtually online. It's really pretty neat. I know that last week we did something new. We had what was called COVID-friendly communion. You remember that? That was a little weird, wasn't it? We had these uh, little cups with juice in them that looks like they were coffee creamers. And that wafer on the top, man, I was taking that thing. It tastes like styrofoam. And then after church, uh, somebody came up to me and they said, you know, this COVID stuff, it really makes church weird. And I think they're right. It does make church a little weird. But that doesn't mean that church is not important. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be here. Uh, as I was thinking about that, the verse that came to mind was Hebrews 10.25. I have it at the top of your outline. It says, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. It's important for us to be able to be together, to be encouraged by the Word of God. We need that in our life. It's important to be together, to be able to sing the Word of God. We need that also as part of our life. It's important for us to be together, if we can be physically, to encourage one another, because we need the encouragement of brothers and sisters in Christ for part of our life. That's what we need for our spiritual health. So I would encourage you, after the service, when we, we go out in the parking lot, we're safely socially distanced, make sure you talk to one another and encourage one another. And if you're stuck at home and it's not safe for you to come out, get on your phone and call your Christian friends. Call your brothers and sisters and encourage them. Because being together is something that is very important for our spiritual health and our vitality and our relationship with Jesus. This morning, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be studying Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be studying the first 11 verses of this chapter. This is a really exciting section, and so I know you're going to be pretty pumped up after we read it and study it together. So if you have your Bibles, take out Philippians and turn to Philippians 3, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Out of reverence for God's Word, I ask you to stand as I read God's Word, and if you have a copy of God's Word, follow along in, uh, in the book. The verses read like this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, 
I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That ends the reading of the Word of God, and you can be seated. We're going to break our study in these verses apart under three headings. The first thing we're going to see is that religious people are dogs, religion is rubbish, and then we're going to see that Jesus is the only answer. But before we dive into the three main points, Paul gives us sort of a transitional verse. So let me read this transitional verse and then we'll explain it. Verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe to you. So what Paul is saying is he is going to, in these verses, give sort of a refresher course to the Philippians. He's going to teach them something that they already know. He's going to remind the Philippians, and he's going to remind us of things that we shouldn't forget. Because isn't that usually the way it works? There are things that we always have to remember, but in the busyness of life, we sort of forget about those things in life. So Paul is going to do a review so I hope the, this morning what we're going to review is not new to you, but it's something that you've heard before, but it's good to be reminded of. Because what we're going to talk about today is probably the most important thing you need to know in this life. I also want to prepare you. Up to this point, Paul has been a very positive person, a very joy-filled person. He prays about the Philippians with great joy. He thinks about them with joy. But in these verses, his tone is going to change. He is going to use some very strong language, some very unsettling language in these verses. And that's not because he, he is a grumpy old man. It's because Paul is a very concerned old man. He's very concerned for the Philippians, and he's very concerned for us. Because there are people that have come into the lives of the Philippians that want to deceive them, that are trying to manipulate them, that are trying to twist them, that are trying to warp them with lies and deceptive words. And ultimately, if the Philippians listen to them, they've walked away from Christ. They've lost their relationship with God. If Paul was around today, he would not be happy with our media because he doesn't like people who twist the truth and bend the truth and deceive people by not telling the truth. And that's what he's upset about in this section. Now you may wonder, who are these people that are coming into the lives of the Philippians that have Paul so riled up? so upset that he would speak in this section with very strong words. These people are known as the, the Judaizers. I'll tell you more about them as we work our way through the study, but in essence, whenever Paul planted a church, 
they would move into town afterwards and try to undermine the church. Whatever Paul said, they would disagree with. Whatever Paul taught, they would try to refute. They would write a negative blog post or they'd create a negative tweet against it. Whenever Paul preached, they preached a counter-sermon. These Judaizers were very wicked people. They weren't trying to just destroy Paul and trying to destroy Paul's work, but ultimately they were trying to destroy Jesus Christ. And they're trying to destroy the work of salvation that Jesus Christ offers in the lives of people. That is why Paul gets very animated. That is why Paul gets very angry, because what they are doing is such a terrible, wicked thing. Let me summarize what he's saying about these Judaizers. Uh, This is the big ticket item we're going to talk about today. It's the issue of legalism. Legalism is the, the idea of thinking you can be right before God by what you do. That you can earn acceptance before God. That we can be forgiven before God by our works. In other words, legalism is saying that it's not true that we're accepted solely and completely by Jesus. That we must do something to help Jesus. And so in these verses, Paul is going to give us a refresher course of what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be a Christian? And I can tell you in summary it's this. It's you're saved by trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone. Nothing else. So let's dive into the main section of verses where Paul teaches us that religious people are actually dogs. In verses 2 and 3, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul's point here is there's a real big difference between a Christian person and a religious person. There's a big difference between Jesus people and religious people. Jesus people, we know we're undeserving sinners and we're saved by Jesus alone. And if you're following along under outline, you'll see I put down this. Jesus people, because of that, are filled with humility. As Jesus people, we know we are not good people, but Jesus was good. We also know we have not lived a good life, but Jesus lived a good life. We know that we don't, we deserve, we don't deserve God's love, but Jesus has given us God's love. Since Jesus' people, that is us, since we know we are so undeserving of these things, yet God has given us all of these things through Jesus, that means we're very humble because we are undeserving people who have received God's love. We don't save ourselves. Jesus has saved us. Also, Jesus' people, they live a life filled with joy. Because, folks, the pressure is off. Did you realize that? The pressure is off to make God happy. The pressure is off to be good enough to earn God's love. We don't have to earn God's love anymore because Jesus was good for us in our place. Now, do we live a changed life? 
well, yes, we live a changed life. But that's not to earn God's love. That's because we have God's love. That when we have trusted in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into our life. The Bible says he makes us into a new creation. And as a result, we have new desires to please Christ. We have new energy to pursue Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Humble people, joyful people who trust completely in Jesus. But Paul will say in this section that religious people, very different. He describes religious people as dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. Let's look at what he means by this. When he says religious people are like wild dogs. Now, if you're like me, you actually probably have a pet around the house. You love dogs. Our dogs are well-trained. They're very pleasant. Our dogs are known as man's best friends. But that's not what dogs were like at the time of Paul. In that time, dogs were wild dogs. They weren't house dogs. They ran in packs. They ran free. And as a pack, they would terrorize people. They would bite people. As a pack, they were known for killing young children. They went to the bathroom everywhere. If you want to think what it's like, maybe you've seen those uh, videos of what it's like in Africa with the wild dogs in Africa. That's what it was like at the time of Paul with wild dogs and how they terrorized and abused people. And that's what Paul says religious people are like. They will terrorize you. They will abuse you. They will hurt you. They may masquerade as looking like good people, but they're actually evil people, which is what he says. Religious people are evil doers. What they do is they try to enslave you. They want you to think that by your lifestyle, you can save yourself. What they do is they give you lists of rules that you have to obey and follow and prohibitions, things you don't do and things you must do. And if you obey all these lists, then the religious people think, want you to think that you're actually saving yourself. And the truth is, by obeying lists, you're not saving yourself. You're just frustrating yourself. You need to realize God hates religion. He hates religion in all of its forms. It's disgusting to God. It is sick to God to think that people can do a bunch of good deeds and somehow earn themselves into a right relationship with God. It's repulsive to our God. Now, sometimes religious people, they just don't go all out and follow a list. Sometimes they halfway follow Christ and they halfway follow a list. This is the next point in your outline. Religious people often trust Christ's work, plus they add their work. What they do is they say, Jesus started the process of saving us, but we have to finish the process of saving us. We have to help Jesus save us. Jesus isn't enough. And they'll often say, well, Jesus did 80% of the work, and I have to do the last 20% of the work. And so they think that we're the ones who help Jesus. And people who think like that end up very proud. 
they end up very critical of others. They end up very mean towards others. They end up very self-absorbed because they look at themselves in the mirror and what do they still say? Look at me, because I did it. I saved myself. I was a really good person. Now, the particular religious people that Paul is referring to, that he calls mutilators of the flesh, which, by the way, is not a compliment, are the Judaizers that we talked about before. And what do these Judaizers say? They would come into town after Paul preached the gospel. He would tell people to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And the Judaizers would come in and say, oh, Paul only has part of the story right. Oh, yeah, you trust in, in Jesus, but then you really need to be Jewish too. You need to take on Jewish customs, Jewish traditions, Jewish holidays, Jewish clothing, Jewish ways. Jesus was Jewish? You need to be Jewish too. So Jesus saves you by the 80%, and then you pursue being Jewish and save yourself by the last 20%. And one of the things they love to say to the Gentile men who had trusted in Jesus in the church and say, and by the way, Jewish men are circumcised. And all those Gentile men would think about a sharp object in a very, let's say, personal place, and they would say, I'm not too sure if salvation is for me. I think I need to leave the room. And what was actually happening was the Judaizers were destroying salvation itself because people were starting to trust in their works instead of Christ's finished work. Now this issue of circumcision, how did it even get shoved in there? I mean, where did it even come from? Circumcision starts in the Bible when God worked into Abraham's life and called Abraham to himself. Abraham was to circumcise himself and circumcision was to be a mark that he was now in a special relationship with God. And all of Abraham's descendants were also to be circumcised as a mark that they were now in a special relationship with God. That, relation, that mark didn't make them in a special relationship with God. It was a mark that set, that was physically apparent that they were in a special relationship with God. It's like a wedding ring. This wedding ring doesn't make me married. This wedding ring is a sign to everyone else that I am married. That's the way circumcision would supposed to work. And then you ask yourself, well, okay, I understand what circumcision is. It's a sign. It's a, it's a Jewish sign. But why don't Gentiles need to adopt these things? Why don't Gentiles have to become Jewish? Because Jesus was Jewish. And here's the answer to that. Once Jesus came, the Old Testament signs pointing to him are no longer necessary. The Old Testament traditions, the Old Testament ways, what they were all doing is pointing to Jesus Christ, preparing people for Jesus Christ, but once Jesus came, they're not needed. I like to think of it this way. The Old Testament is like a big Google Maps program. When do you use Google Maps? When you're going someplace. 
do you use Google Maps once you get to that place? Absolutely not. It's not needed anymore. And that's exactly what the Old Testament is. It's consistently pointing us to Jesus, but now that we have Jesus, we don't need to follow those Old Testament ways. I'll give you some examples. In the Old Testament, the presence of God among the people was ultimately in the, the tabernacle, in the, the temple. And the Holy of Holies was the place where God's presence was said to dwell. So it was a building by which God dwelled among his people. But then Jesus came. And it was a body by which God dwelled among his people. Having Jesus in a body is much better than having Jesus in a distant building. And you notice the temple went away. It was destroyed in 70 AD and never rebuilt because it wasn't needed anymore. In the Old Testament, when people were going to uh, have to deal with their sins and deal with their prayers and needed to talk to God, they went to a priest. And the priest was the intermediary between them and God. But then Jesus came along. And according to the book of Hebrews, Jesus is our great high priest. He is the one who mediates between us and God. So what happened to the Old Testament priesthood? It's gone away. It's not needed anymore. But it pointed to what Jesus came to do. How about the Old Testament sacrificial system? Constantly animals being sacrificed for sin. But then you get to the Gospel of John, and what does it say? Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world sacrifices pointed forward to the one great sacrifice of Jesus. And once Jesus has died for our sin, there no longer needs to be a sacrifice for our sin. So the Old Testament sacrifices are done away with. Like I said, it's a massive Google Maps program in the Old Testament, all pointing to Jesus in various different ways. But when Jesus arrives... It's no longer needed. That's why you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. That's why you don't have to be Jewish to be a Christian. I even like the way Jesus speaks about this. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I didn't come to do away with them, but so you could see how they all pointed to me and they are fulfilled in me. In Jesus' day, the people who were the religious people, who were trying to get people to trust in their works, were the Judaizers. And they were trying to trust in doing Jewish works and adopting a, a Jewish culture. And I know what you're thinking. Well, it's a good thing the Judaizers don't exist anymore today. And we don't have to fall into that trap but the very principle of the trap that they fell into still exists right now in our lives. Plenty of people will say to you, yes, you trust in Jesus, but there's something more you have to do after you trust in him. And that is not the gospel. If you're trusting in Jesus plus anything, you are ruining everything. Let me give you an example. Today, religious people say that we are saved by Christ, plus we have to live a moral life. 
Trust in Jesus, plus you have to be a good person, plus you have to help people, plus you better recycle, because all good Christians must recycle, plus you have to give to a cause, plus you have to coach a children's sport team, plus you have to work in a soup kitchen, plus you better make sure you pick up litter. All Christians must pick up litter. And you get the drift. It's trusting in Jesus plus living a moral life. And that's not being a Christian. Those who trust in that actually are not Christians. Others today say religious people must trust in Christ plus we have to live a religious life. So for them, they say, you trust in Jesus, plus you better make sure you speak in tongues, plus you better make sure you get baptized, plus you better make sure you vote for a particular political party, plus you better make sure you homeschool your kids, because all good Christians homeschool your kids, plus you better make sure you wear Christian t-shirts, plus you better make sure you only listen to Christian radio, because real Christians only listen to Christian radio, and the list goes on and on and on. And Paul says, people who are adding to the finished work of Christ, you know who they are? They're dogs. They're evildoers. They're mutilators of the flesh. Paul doesn't like them one bit. Now, he continues and he says this. Religion, the idea of trying to save yourself by a list of the good things you do, it's rubbish. That's what it is verses 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is thinking about what it's going to be like on the day he dies, <laughs> the day he stands in front of God for judgment. He's thinking, man, you know what I'm going to do? He said, I started out thinking this is what I do. I just rip out my resume. I have a really good and impressive resume, and God would look at that and go, man, you're great. Stamp it good and send me into heaven. That's what Paul started out thinking in life. And then he details in this section his resume. So Paul has an impressive resume. Let me show it to you. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. You already know the Judaizers are pretty into this circumcision thing. He says, I wasn't a Gentile who got circumcised later in life. I grew up in a good Jewish home. I grew up with good Jewish parents. I was circumcised according to the Old Testament on the eighth day. That's the day, the first possible day, that's when I was circumcised. So I've got the best circumcision of them all. And then he says, And of the people of Israel, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Historically, I don't just come from any tribe, guys. Of the twelve tribes, I come from one of the best tribes. The city of Jerusalem, it was located in the territory of Benjamin. When the northern and southern kingdoms split and ten kingdoms from the north went away, two kingdoms from the south stayed true to the Davidic dynasty. One of those tribes was the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul says, that's my tribe. I come from a good tribe with a, with a good legacy. And as to the law, he says, I was a Pharisee. 
The Pharisees, as you know, were the most devoted sect of Judaism to following the law. There were literally hundreds of Old Testament laws on the books in the Old Testament to follow, but they didn't think that was enough. So the Pharisees added their extra laws. They added additional laws to what was already in the Old Testament so they could be even further law keepers. I like the fact that Jesus sort of makes fun of them because when it came to tithing, they even made sure they tithed from their spice rack. What this means is in that day, you would have some house plants that you were growing for spices. Maybe you had a house plant that had some oregano in it. And before they clipped, or when they clipped that oregano off to put in their food, they made sure they separated the leaves with a real fine piece of stick. And they said, this is the 10%, and that goes in the offering plate. And they came in with a little Ziploc bag of a few oregano leaves and dropped it in. We always give 10%. That's what the Pharisees were like. As to zeal, Paul says, I was a persecutor of the church. Before he was a Christian, you see Paul showing up at the stoning of Stephen. He guarded everyone's jackets so people could get better velocity out of their pitching arm as they threw rocks to destroy him. That's what Saul was. Paul was the guy who would go from city to city to arrest Christians. Maybe you can contemporize it a little bit and think of him like a a modern-day rioter who would go from city to city. And what would he do? He'd burn down the Christians' business. He'd terrorize the Christians' families. He'd arrest the Christians and take them off to trial in Jerusalem. He was about as zealous and hardcore as you can get when it came to persecuting the church, which he thought he was doing to please God. As to righteousness under the law, on my resume, he says, I was blameless. The Old Testament has over 600 commands. I want you to realize he didn't say I was sinless, but he says I was blameless. There's a difference. Sinless would mean he never broke a command. Blameless means that no matter what happened when he broke a command, he always offered the right sacrifice for breaking that command. So when somebody looked at him, on the outside, he looked spotless. But on the inside, you and I know, he was filled with pride. So Paul had an impressive resume. And that's what he planned on whipping out and showing before God when he stood before him for judgment. But here's what we find. Paul threw away his resume because it was rubbish before God. Verses 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's our key word there. In order that I may gain Christ. Paul says that all the religious works that he had that he was trusting in, all those good things that he had done that he put on his resume, what he was hoping to get for God's stamp of approval, he says he got rid of it all. He burned it all. He realizes it's now completely rubbish. He realizes that now Jesus is the one who lived the perfect life that he couldn't live. Jesus died the death that he deserved to die. Jesus is the one who had the perfect life. Paul didn't have the perfect life.
And I ask you, right now, what are you trusting in? What's on your resume that you plan on whipping out after you die and you stand before God? Are you going to show God a, a list of all your good deeds, all the nice things you've done, hoping that that will earn his stamp of approval and entrance into heaven? I have news for you. If you think your resume is impressive enough to get you into heaven, Paul's resume is far more impressive than yours. And he considers it rubbish, absolutely worthless as he stands before God. Your resume is rubbish too. And the next point I have in your outline, and this will be fun, just so you know, rubbish is worse than garbage. You said to yourself, well, no, I thought rubbish is the same as garbage. Actually, it's worse than garbage. I, I like the ESV translation that we typically study together as a church. It's a very accurate translation, but the word rubbish is a very soft English word when really behind this in the Greek is a very strong Greek word. Now, I'm not trying to be cross. I'm not trying to be crude right now. I'm not trying to be sensationalistic, but I need to let you know that on occasions, the Bible uses some very bad words. But when it uses bad words, it uses those words because it's describing some very bad things. And religion, thinking that you can somehow earn your way into a relationship with God, is a very bad thing. So in the Greek, this is a very bad word. The ESV uses the term rubbish. Other translations use the term refuge. Some translations use the term filth. Still, other translations call it dung. Religion. Thinking that I can earn my way into heaven by doing good things is so offensive to God that God looks at our lists of good works, and what does he see? To him, it's like a big, hot, steaming pile of dog poop. Not a little dog. We're talking a, a, a big dog. It's that offensive to God. And by the way, in the 17th century, there was a translation that was used primarily by farmers that, yes, it used the S word in translation because that's literally what it is. That's what Paul considers, that list of good works and good things he's done. I put this in your outline because this is important. Thinking that we can behave our way out of sin and into heaven is offensive to God. Because why? It misses the seriousness of our sin and the price that must be paid to atone for our sin. Folks, our sin is so serious. It deserves just eternal punishment in the lake of fire. That's how serious sin is. The only way to pay for sin was for God's own Son to come and take on flesh and be punished for us. That's the of the price that needs to be paid. To think that us, by doing a, a few good works, by picking up trash, by helping in a soup kitchen, that's on my list of good works, that that is somehow going to take care of the problem of sin. 
and be enough to earn our way into heaven is completely and totally offensive to God. It misses the seriousness of our, of our sin and the greatness of what he had to do to save us through Jesus. In case this is not connecting with you, let me go to a passage in Isaiah that I think possibly Paul was thinking of in his mind when he wrote this verse in Philippians. It's Isaiah 64, 6. Maybe you've heard it before. We all... We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. A polluted garment? Well, that doesn't sound bad at all. Sounds like the shirt I wear when I change oil on my truck. You know, that's just a, a dirty shirt. That's all it is. Here again, we find the English really under-translates what is the original language. The words in Hebrew for polluted garment are literally a woman's menstrual cloth. All of our righteous deeds by which we try to do self-salvation are completely and totally disgusting to God and repulsive to God. Now, some of you were sitting there saying, Oh, I can't believe it. Pastor Kurt talked about dog poop in church. And that's what you're going to talk about over, over lunch. And you're going to make a big deal over the fact that I talked about dog poop. But if you do that, I think you've totally missed the purpose of what I'm saying. I didn't write those words. God wrote those words. All I did was read the words that God wrote. And if I left it under-translated like the English does, I would be doing a great disservice to you because you would not realize how offensive it is to God to think that we somehow can be our, by our good behavior, can earn our way into heaven when it cost God his own son to get us there. You need to understand that and see that. Now let me just detail this out in this way. Sometimes when you're trying to make a point, you want to say the same thing again and again in different ways. It's like driving a nail into a board. You have to hit the nail again and again to let it penetrate. So let me do that with this. What is the difference between religion and Christianity? Say it a number of times. Religion is all about what I do to save myself. Christianity is about what God has done for me. It's not about what I do. Religion says, if I obey the rules, then God will love me. Christianity says, God chose to love me even when I wasn't obeying the rules. Religion sees good people and bad people, where God rewards the good people and he punishes the bad people. Christianity every single one is a bad person. The only good person out there is Jesus. But by trusting him, I get all the righteousness of Jesus. Religion confuses justification and sanctification. Religion says, if I live a sanctified life, a really good life, then God will justify me at the end of the day. Where Christianity says the exact opposite. It says, I can't live a good life. So I trust in Jesus Christ who lived the good life for me and who died for me and that I'm justified by God 
And when I'm justified by God, he sends his Holy Spirit into me, giving me new passions and new desires. And then I start to live a sanctified life, a changed life. Religious people, they hate to repent because repentance means admitting they are actually not good. Christian people love to repent because we already know we're not good. In fact, we're used to repenting to God. Religious people have uncertainty in their standing before God, where Christian people live with confidence in our standing before God. See, religious people are always sitting there saying, I don't know if I've been good enough. So at the end of the day, when I stand before God, I, w I wonder if I've, my good deeds have outweighed my bad deeds. But Christian people know that we could never be good enough. And even if our good deeds did outweigh our bad deeds, God demands absolute perfection, which means I'm never going to make it. But this is what we know. It's real simple. 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It's that easy. Religion leads to a life of pride and despair. Christianity leads to a life of humility and joy. Religious people, because it's about lists and all the things they do, they end up getting real proud about it. Look what I've done. I, I've done better than other people. I, I, I've earned this. And they get self-absorbed and inflated in their egos. Or religious people go the other direction. I know what the right thing is to do. But I keep trying to do the right things. And I keep failing at doing it the right things. And I can never do the right things. So where do you end up? In despair. That'll never be good enough. So religious people are either filled with pride or despair. But Christian people, once again, we talked about this earlier, we're filled with humility and joy. Humble because we know we didn't do anything to save ourselves. No matter how good we were, we would never be good enough. But Jesus did it all for us. We only trusted in him. That's how we're saved. That's why we're humble people. It doesn't matter where you come from, what you've done right or what you've done wrong. It's just trusting in Jesus. And we're joy-filled people because we are in a right relationship with God. So Paul has dismantled this idea of religion. Religious people, they're dogs, they're evildoers, they're mutilators of the flesh, giving you lists, enslaving you, and ruining your life. Religion... It's actually just rubbish. Actually, it's worse than garbage, the idea of trying to keep a bunch of lists. And now he gives us the other side. Jesus. Jesus, my friends, is the answer. And what he does in verses 9, 10, and 11 is he talks about how to become a Christian in verse 9, how to live as a Christian in verse 10, and the hope that we all look forward to as Christians in verse 11 or if you want to use big terms, verse 9 is about justification, verse 10 is about sanctification, verse 11 is about glorification. And I may not get to the last two, because of the interest of time, but we'll at least get to the first. Let's look at justification. I trust Jesus alone to be made right with God. Philippians 3.9 And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The only way for anyone to go to heaven is if people are righteousness. That is, if they're perfect and if they're sinless. But what does the Bible say about each one of us? Romans chapter 3, 10 through 12. There is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Isaiah 59 says this, It's your sins. They have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Sin is far more pervasive in our life than we ever realized. Sin is, sin is not just the things we actually do with our hands. Sin is the thoughts of our minds, because God knows the sinful desires and thoughts that we have. Sin is not just the things we choose to do wrong, but the book of James says that sin is the things that we fail to do right. Sin is everywhere. We may not be as sinful as we possibly could be, but we're sinful in every way and in every thing. The idea is that even if we could somehow, miraculously, manage to atone for just one of our sins, just one of our sins is enough to send us to the lake of fire forever, even if we could just take care of one of them, in the next 30 minutes, we'd have 10 more, wouldn't we? We are stuck. There is absolutely no way we can save ourselves, which is why the idea of lists, the idea of religion, what we do to save ourselves is a completely dead-end road. Folks, here's the good news. So God made a way. God passionately and deeply loves you. He knew there was no way that we could save ourselves, so he sent his own son to save us, who died in our place for our sin. And when we place our faith in what Jesus has done for us, an amazing transformation happens. Not only does all of our sinfulness go to Jesus, as he died for it on the cross, but all of the perfection all of the holiness, all of the purity of Jesus gets put onto us. So when God looks at us now after we place our faith in Jesus, he doesn't see the ugliness of our sin. That's been taken away. He sees all the purity, beauty, and holiness of his own son. Martin Luther says that when we become a Christian, the great exchange happened. Our sin went to Jesus, and his holiness came to us. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. So trusting Jesus and Jesus alone to save us from our sin, that is the only way to have life with God. That is the most important thing you need to know in this world and in this life. 
Folks, listen to me. I don't care if you're a black person or if you're a white person. I don't care if you're a rich person or if you're a poor person. I don't care what your educational level is. I don't care what your family background is. I don't care what career you have or how many titles you have in front of your name. I don't even care what is your favorite social media account. The one thing you need to know is you need to burn your old resume of all the good things you did thinking you could trust in that, burn that old resume and write a new one with just one word on it, the name of Jesus. Because trusting in Him and in Him alone and in the finished, complete work of Christ is the only way to be saved. And don't you dare think that He needs some help or that you can add to what he's done, because Jesus did it all. And it's him alone that we trust in. This is why we're Christians, and why we're not anything else. Folks, you need to understand, for Christianity, Jesus has done all the work, and all we do is trust in him. But all the other religions of the world, we must do the work and trust in ourselves. This is what sets apart being a Christian from everything else. Let me show you what I mean. If you're a Buddhist, you have to save yourself by ceasing all your desires. If you're Confucianism, you follow that, you have to save yourself by pursuing education, reflection, and morality. If you try to save yourself through Hinduism, you try to save yourself by detaching yourself from yourself and then living in unity with the divine. If you try to save yourself with Judaism, you save yourself by obeying the laws. In New Age, you save yourself by connecting with divine oneness. In Taoism, you save yourself by aligning yourself with the Tao and growing and going with the flow. In Islam, you save yourself by following the five pillars and hoping your good deeds outweigh your bad. But in Christianity, you don't save yourself. Because you can't save yourself. Folks, look inside your heart. Do you think you could actually save yourself and make yourself right with God? You and I know what a, what a foolish proposition that is to trust in our work. Why well, we must trust in Christ's finished work. In fact, I would go so far as to say this is one of the reasons I don't even like to call Christianity a religion. Because when you talk about religions... Everyone says, here are all the things you must do. But as Christians, it's not about what we must do. It's trusting in what Jesus has done. Completely and totally different. So this morning I ask you, are you a Christian? If you were to die tonight and stand in front of God, what would you be trusting in? Would you whip out your list? Would you whip out all the good things that you have done? Or would you even say, well, I've trusted in Jesus, but by the way, here's all the extra things I did to go on top of that to really help Jesus finish the process. If you've trusted in any of that, you're not saved. Burn your resume. Trust in Jesus alone. Let me put it to you this way. Religious people are dogs. Religion is rubbish. Trusting in Jesus alone is the only answer. And as I said in the title of this message, Jesus plus anything ruins everything. Jesus plus anything 
ruins everything. Trust in him alone to be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning's message is for many of us a refresher course. But it's a good course because it's so easy for us to start to think that we are saved not just by what you have done, but by the good works that we have done that have added to that. And yet that is so deadly. That is so evil. That is so wrong. So today we, we, we cast aside all the things that we have done and trusted in in our life, and we rely completely and totally and only on you, Jesus. We are desperate for you to save us completely. We know this is what sets us apart from all the other religions in the world. And this is why we can be confident that on the day we die, we will be in your presence, not based on what we have done, but based on what your Son has done. Now, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to remember that adding anything to Jesus ruins everything with Jesus. And I also ask for those who are in this room who are listening online, who may not have been Christians when they walked in the building or tuned in, I pray that they would today burn their resume, they would cast their hope and their trust in Jesus, and they would be born again. And as they are born again, that you would send your Holy Spirit in their life, and their Holy Spirit would radically give them new desires make them into a new creation, and help them to follow hard after you, not to be saved, but because they have been saved. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.